Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Jordy here. With spooky season upon us, I thought I would share one of my recently favorited mystery series. If you're like me, you're a sucker for some fun, cozy mysteries, but you still want to feel the suspense. Just not too much, you know? Don't get me wrong. I love a good thrill, but I don't want to have any difficulty falling asleep. For this reason, the Jane Wonderly series provides just enough suspense without being too thrilling and keeping you up at night and continuously looking over your shoulder. The first book, Murder at the Mina House, has strong Agatha Christie vibes through and through. This isn't surprising, though, because author Erica Ruth Neubauer won the 2021 Agatha Award for this book. And this story felt like a modern retelling of Death on the Nile. However, instead of having Hercule Poirot solve the mystery, we have Jane Wonderly. Jane is fiercely independent and surprisingly relatable for a woman who lived about 100 years ago. She has been recently widowed, but this is more of a freedom for Jane than a somber event because her husband was abusive. In this first book, we embark on a trip to Egypt, where the characters are trying to escape the aftershocks of World War I. However, danger is still lurking around the corner because one of the travelers is found dead. And not just any traveler, Anna Stanton, who made it appear as if she were Jane's rival. Now, Jane's innocence and freedom is in the balance because she is the main suspect in a murder investigation in a foreign country. Jane must solve this crime to clear her name, but she mustn't get too distracted with the dashing Mr. Redvers, who also has too many secrets of his own. The second book, Murder at Wedgefield Manor, gave me Murder on the Links vibes, not because of the way the mystery played out, but because of the golfing that was mentioned in this book. And now that I'm saying this, I realize it doesn't take much for me to relate something back to an Agatha Christie novel. In this story, Jane travels abroad to England with her aunt that we were introduced to in the first book. While at Wedgefield Manor, one of the estate's mechanics is found killed in a motor car collision. However, the slashed car brake cables prove that this was no accident. The house is full of suspects with their own motives. And you may be asking, does Mr. Redvers make another appearance? And to that, I'd say you'll have to read and find out. The third and most recently published book in the series, which came out in March of this year, is Danger on the Atlantic. In this book, Jane and Mr. Redvers take a transatlantic trip where, unfortunately, yet another person seems to have been untimely demise. In this story, wealthy newlywed Vanessa Fitzsimmons claims that her husband has mysteriously gone missing at sea. In this book, Jane will have to go undercover to determine if the rumors are true and determine if and who are the German spy duo and what intelligence they are trying to gain. Like I said, if you're a fan of Agatha Christie, cozy mysteries that provide enough suspense to keep you going, then this series is for you. I listen to each of these books on my Hoopla app, which is where you can go to download library books onto your phone, and I listen to each of these in a day. They were just so entertaining, and I think one time I was cleaning and I was bored, so I put on an audiobook, and I just kept going with it. So great way to pass the time. And if you've read these series, I would love to know what your thoughts are and if you're as excited as I am for the next one to come out. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Isidore Nut Company. While some may say it's a wild and audacious thing to think that you can repair the world simply by making nuts, but here's the secret. Isidore Nut Company fiercely believes every intentional decision they make in business has the power to change the way we all work, eat, and live in this world. 
So you can see why they're our favorite nut company. In fact, I can't keep my hands out of my bag of the chai spice flavor. <laughs> October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, and Isidore Nut Company is proud to be an all-abilities employer. That's just one small way they're changing the world one bag of delicious roasted nuts at a time. You can learn more at isidorenutco.com, and Feminist Book Club listeners can get 20% off of any order over $45 with the code FBC20, and that's isidorenutco.com, and there's a link in the show notes. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I am here with Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson, authors of Toil and Trouble, A Women's History of the Occult, co-hosts of the Know Thy Fear podcast and horror experts. Lisa Kroger holds a PhD in English and is an occult story author. Melanie R. Anderson is an assistant professor of English and the author of Spectrality in the novels of Toni Morrison. Together, they introduced readers to their collection of biographies and of unconventional women who write horror in the book Monster She Wrote, which earned the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Nonfiction and a Booklist Editor's Choice in Arts and Literature and the Locust Award for Nonfiction. Really, the exact people you want to sit down with and discuss women's and non-binary history, the occult and feminism. And I am so excited we get to do just that. Thank you both for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So this book, oh my gosh, it, it is a, a rich collection of short biographies of women and non-binary people who are involved with an, influ uh, with an influence in the occult, whether that was from a believer's perspective, a skeptic's perspective, or potentially as a charlatan. Um, could you tell us how you came to write this book and how you chose your subjects? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and tackle that one. Um, you know, the occult is something I think that Mel and I have always been interested in. Um, I mean, it certainly snuck its way into Monster She Wrote more than a few of the women in Monster She Wrote had kind of ties to the occult or um, interest in that kind of occult knowledge. So it was there already and we had already been thinking about it. But I would say while we were working on Monster She Wrote, we, we were noticing a few really kind of interesting things happen in the world. Um, I particularly, I think, pointed out to Mel that I was on Twitter one day, this was around 2016, and I noticed that a bunch of people, including the singer Lana Del Rey, were posting hexes that they were going to do to bind then president or newly elected, I guess, President Trump's powers and to, to rid the country of stress and negative energy that might be tied to that. <laughs> and... I was so fascinated by it. I was like, this is a really, really interesting thing that's happening. And that kind of led to the discussion that, um, you know, kind of the term witch or, or really anything that's associated with the occult for a long time in our country was considered a really negative thing. And it could be very harmful, particularly for women or anybody outside of that kind of patriarchal power. And I don't know, we just started having these conversations about, um, you know, when did that shift happen where this was so, but we were so comfortable just discussing it publicly and not in the open. So I think that was really the start of it for us. Well, you, um, sorry, Mel, did you want to add to that? 
I apologize. No, I think I think Lisa pretty much described the genesis <laughs> of the book very well. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could add maybe like anecdotally, I'm not on Twitter. So Lisa had to tell me about those things, but I am on Instagram. And even I was seeing, you know, a lot of uh, basically these kind of social influencers who are interested in witchcraft and that sort of thing. And also as a teacher in university, I was also just noticing like the pop culture references that were coming up in ways that hadn't when when I was in school, basically. Yeah. And I, and I think both of those kind of working together, like what's going on in this current moment that's kind of changed things um, or where are there maybe patterns um, that we keep going through throughout this history. You very specifically and pointedly call out language and individuals who were exclusionary to trans women, um, including the prevalence of womb-centric language and maiden mother crone imagery, which only encompasses part of the community and not the whole. This feels to me really long overdue and, and not that controversial, but I admittedly do not fuck around with people who do not have an inclusive idea of feminism. Um, did you all get pushback on that at all? Uh, did we get pushback on calling out the language? Yeah, and pointing it out and the, and the history of it. And I mean, because it seems like a lot of it, you know, people get a strong emotional connection to like history and ritual and routine. And I think a lot of the language around the occult and witches and things like that for a long time was really centered around the idea of like uh, um, the womb and and um, mother and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, this was something that we saw in the history. Um, and so particularly, I mean, I think one of the things you're pointing at is second wave feminists. Um, I was kind of surprised doing the research that there were Books. I think one of the books that we cited, Carol Crisk and Judith Plaskow, had like uh, pieces by Starhawk in it. There was this really active kind of melding by theological scholars who were feminists, like Mary Daly, um, to kind of pull these two worlds together, which is something you've seen in the past with spiritualism being kind of politically involved as well. But yeah, I think we we were trying to point out what those people were saying in that historical moment. And how that was a development in that historical moment. But yes, some of their language was quite exclusionary. And, and I think that is changing, uh, that has been changing. And we definitely wanted to put that out there, that we were representing that point in history and that development. But we also want to be sure that people realize, you know, what was going on with that language. Um, and I can let Lisa add a little bit more to that if she wants to, but pushback, I'm not so sure we've seen pushback so far. I, unless there's something that I don't know about Lisa that you do, maybe we will as the book, you know, comes out and, uh, people start reading it. Perhaps we will. Um, this was something that we talked about a lot. We had many conversations about how do we do that? How do we handle the direction of this history? Um, but also show like our lens on it too, like, uh, and we also talked about this with our editors as well. Um, so hopefully, like you said, this is something that people will accept because these are things that we're talking about now. But there is that possibility, I would think, for pushback. Lisa, do you want to add? Oh, no. I mean, I'll just, yeah, we haven't had pushback yet. But yeah, I think that was just also kind of on a personal level that any chance we get it, I, you know, we can say that trans women are women, we're going to repeat that. So um, yeah, yes. it didn't feel like that uh, revolutionary to us when we were doing it, but hopefully, um, hopefully people accept it just without thinking because that would be lovely. 
That is my fervent wish. Yes. <laughs> I'm on the same page. And I don't feel like we lose anything, you know, by pointing that out and by including all the stories that we can and all the perspectives that we can and um, the full breadth of the history. You know, I think it just enriches our knowledge and our understanding of these things. Some of these entries are so short. I mean, they're, none of them are especially long, but some of them are so short and I, it just makes me want to fall down an internet rabbit hole and read more about the subjects. Uh, were there any tr that you had any trouble like paring down or people or concepts you wish you could have spent more time on? That's a good question. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, mo I think that was part of our problem was not falling down those rabbit holes. And we, we had a lot of those conversations just between ourselves, but also with our editor about like, remember the length of this book and you can't really follow that like you want to, because then <laughs> it's going to be, you know, a 10 volume encyclopedia before you finish. Um, I don't know if there was anybody in particular that I can think of right now that I wanted. Well, I don't know. I, I kind of have a personal interest in, in like Joan Quigley and the women who were, who were in the eighties um, kind of in the middle of the satanic panic, but we're so Joan quickly for people who don't know, she was working with the Reagans. Um, I mean, they said she was working with the first lady, uh, but I think that was largely a cover because they didn't want to admit that the president was seeking an astrologer <laughs> at the time. Um, but I mean, we have some, some pretty interesting evidence that said, you know, that suggests he was taking her word pretty seriously too. But um, I just find it fascinating that, you know, in a time of the satanic panic, when people really were seeing the devil everywhere, um, you know, I think we wrote about it a little bit in the book, but even at one point, like toothpaste was controversial because people thought the Procter and Gamble uh, logo, which I, if I remember right, is like a crescent moon with like a man's face. And it goes back to their founding of the country uh, of the company and like the 1800s and there's nothing satanic about it but people saw that and they were like oh no that has ties to the devil in some sort of way and in that type of moral panic where we were just absolutely convinced that there was um satanic cults ready to like steal our children and eat them i don't know but <laughs> um yeah you know, i mean that was the that was right yeah it, it was it sounds I mean, absurd but that was the messaging it was the it was absolutely the messaging and to think that there was a woman in the white house at the time who was reading like the president's astrological charts and giving him advice on when and where to go um, based on what might be safe and what might not be safe. I don't know. It's just fascinating to me that we had that dichotomy. So I could have jumped down that rabbit hole very quickly. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily because I want to celebrate her, but I'm just fascinated by it. Yeah, uh, it would take, I would think it would take a lot to, um, in an, in the era of satanic panic. And I, and I still really remember what that was like, cause my, my father was really religious. So that was like a big component of my childhood, but to, in that era to like stand up and like, you know, um, promote these belief systems must've been challenging and scary. And like, yeah, to have somebody in the, you know, the highest office in the land, like have the ear of the president that would be remarkable. 
Yeah, I, you know, I just kind of want to echo what Lisa was saying there is that, you know, it's a similar thing to Monster She Wrote, I think you you have a certain amount of space. Um, and there were women that we wanted to include in Monster She Wrote that we maybe couldn't because of space. But there's also the the fact that there were women we wanted to include in that book that we couldn't find a lot of information about too to, to make a profile. And so I think in some ways, we ran into similar situations with Toil and Trouble. Um, and yeah, if you're making a compendium and you're wanting to give people kind of thumbnail sketches to get them to go off and learn more, you can only go so far in your research, unfortunately. And I think Lisa and I both have a tendency to fall down rabbit holes. So, I mean, you could write, I mean, you know, you could write a whole book, you could write a series of books on the Satanic Panic or on the Salem Witch Trials or all these things, but we're just trying to kind of go in and out of these moments and say, here's here's someone that maybe we didn't know that much about that we found that we want to share. And, and also there are other people that maybe we don't know about yet or we weren't able to include or, or whatever um, that people should go out and check out. So we're kind of hoping, I think, that people will look at our our bibliography. I think the full bibliography is going to be posted at Cork, um, attached to the book, um, and kind of go off from there and investigate some of this stuff, whatever they're most interested in. Um, I felt like almost like a kid in a candy store sometimes because I'd have to stop myself from reading about the Salem witch trials because I knew I had to go look up, you know, something about a later period or. And so there, there's no way that we could be completely comprehensive, but we're kind of pointing at these moments and trying to make connections where these women might have been influencing each other. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I hope that that the fact that we couldn't have the breadth helps point people in directions like gets readers interested in learning more about things that maybe they didn't quite know about or or do a little bit of their own research. Yeah, it's not it's not like a super long book. For all the information that's in it, you would expect it to be like this big tome, and it's not. Um, but I, it took me a long time to read it because I just kept like wanting to know more about all these figures. And so I spent a lot of time you know, going online and like looking them up and reading about them. And like, it was such an enriching experience and such a wonderful uh, way to like jump off into this world and to find out more about people that you have interest in or that you might feel, you know, big feelings about. Uh, it was, it was really great. I, I was going to ask you what, what role did, now, and I mean, feel free to answer this however you wish, um, but what role does cultural appropriation play in the current adoption of occult, occult principles, actions, and items? Like how do you see people being able to uplift practices traditional to BIPOC individuals without stepping in to claim them? Um, One thing that I will, I will say, I mean, I, I went into this research kind of worried <laughs> that because I'm, I don't really practice any sort of occult belief system or, or a belief system that I think would fall under that. I guess an argument could be made that all, <laughs> all religions kind of fall under that. But um, yeah, I, I was a little bit worried that I was going to find a lot more of like, to be honest, just like white women who woke up one, one day and decided I'm going to be a witch and I'm going to go out and kind of pick and choose what is part of my belief system and, you know, not realize that they're taking something that uh, culturally, historically, um, even like familiar, familiar that's a strange word um <laughs> but will will um belong to somebody else and I was worried that 
Um, I would encounter a whole lot more of that in my research. And the good news, I think, at least for me, is that I saw a lot of conversations in these communities of people trying to be cognizant that that wasn't happening. Like, I think people are actively having conversations today to say like, yes, it's okay if you take this or if you adopt this, but it's not okay if you take this. I was already kind of aware of some of the things happening around, like for instance, um, the use of white sage. Um, a lot of people will, I mean, that's even a, a con- like colloquialism that I've used before, like, oh, you know, you, you need to sage that situation, <laughs> you know, like clear it of negative energy. Um, but, you know, when you started reading, when I started reading about it, I realized that, oh, okay, um, that entering into our cultural conversation has meant that now there's this like overproduction of white sage and that people who use it, um, in rituals that are that are part of their belief system that are part of their culture now cannot either get it or cannot afford it and you know that was really troubling but again i've seen that more people than not are having the conversations about that type of cultural appropriation which was really reassuring because i think the problems still persist i think the problems are still out there but i think more and more people are trying to rectify that which is really nice because kind of like the um, conversation we had about trans women and the inclusivity and feminism, like I think you can have one and have the other. I think you can have, we're going to accept people, you know, who are curious about our community and want to learn more and want to become part of it while at the same time preserving that, that um, cultural space for people. um, If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you can add to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think when we first stepped into this, you know, neither of us are practitioners per se. We are just people who are very interested in how this plays a role in history and why people haven't necessarily paid attention to this before. Um, But I think, you know, all you have to do in some ways is look at pop culture representations of occult systems associated with BIPOC individuals as scary or dangerous. I mean, this is going all the way back to very early films. And so we were kind of aware of that because of our interest in horror. And I I have to say, like Lisa, I was kind of and of course we were, you know, the, the issues about sage production. Also crystals have a very kind of uh, difficult uh, context because of labor issues. Um, um, all those kind of terrible things associated with capitalism that you don't really think of. Um, but as we did more research, like I cannot, I feel terrible because I'm blanking on the person's name, but I read some guides to Wicca and the craft from just the past, like, five to 10 years. And this person was was mentioning these things about being careful about cultural appropriation. And, you know, as a person who's been in an academic setting, I might've been like, well, I wish you'd go a little stronger here. But the fact that these conversations are happening and the fact that there are warnings, I think, of these things is, is something that we wanted to bring up that yes, issues of cultural appropriation are there, but it feels like, especially with these discussions happening on social media, that some of these things, the language we talked about earlier and the the language around this situation, it, there's conversations around it. And, and hopefully that 
awareness um, will make us more aware, not just uh, amongst practitioners, but also maybe even our pop culture uh, going forward. That would be wonderful. I mean, I know it's not groundbreaking to say that a lot of horror does use the um, the fear of the other and a lot of um, occult practices from people of color as as uh, motivators for for villains or for scary things or and um, to be able to have more intentional and educated conversations around this, I think can really shift the that paradigm and bring light to the beauty and the history of a lot of these different practices for folks. And, and that can only be, well, I would hope that that would be a good thing. Um, I have one last question for you both. Um, what does feminism mean to each of you and how do you reflect that in your work? That's a question we could probably fill a book on, but I'll, I'll try. <laughs> yeah, sorry to sneak that one right in at the end. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, acknowledging that we live in a patriarchal system um, where a, a certain type of person, that being probably a white cisgender, you know, man is going to be at the top. Um, and that's what our history has been shown. Like that, that's the lens that our history has been shown through. I think for me, feminism is about making sure that everybody is raised up to that point. And so that's why I think I'm really passionate about saying that, um, you know, it's not just women and it's not just white women that it's, um, it's women of color, that it's, it's members of the LGBTQ community, you know, that everybody, trans women, everybody is elevated and that we can look at our history also through that lens as well. And that, and that's why I think, especially with Monsters She Wrote and Toil and Trouble, that that's really informed us that we've tried um, our best with like the limited <laughs> page count that we get um, that we can kind of start widening that lens that we see our country through and that we see our history through. So, yeah, I think, I think that's part of it. I don't think it's, it always baffles me when, when people, you know, talk about feminism, like it's a bad word to <laughs> to use because I'm like, we're, we're, we're really trying to open it up and make sure that everybody's story is told and not just a specific type. Yeah, same. I mean, I think Lisa articulated uh, my thoughts on that as well. I, I think it's, I think part of what we try to do in our work is show the directions that feminism has moved in, but then also remind people that we need to be as inclusive and open as possible, uh, which is something that we strove to do in Toil and Trouble and we continue to strive to do. And I feel like in some ways, almost unconsciously without overtly thinking about it, my career has been, you know, writing about women characters in fiction and trying to bring attention to women writers um, that maybe haven't had as much attention or doing something like Toil and Trouble with looking at another side of history that when you're looking at things through a white male uh, like, you know, Christian lens, you may not see. Um, I think it's important to look at the whole story. I think it's so easy sometimes in our society to even 
get into the idea of looking at history in particular kind of very limited ways or reading books in very particular like limited ways. And I want to open that up. I want people to read more um, by women and people of color and uh, read more books that are, uh, you know, go beyond what we typically maybe are taught in school or we think of as like the traditional canon. And and I'm, I think until in trouble, we're trying to do the same thing with history. So yeah, definitely opening things up, becoming more inclusive um, has become kind of something that I find myself doing in my academic career and my writing. Splendid. Um, it, you know, it was such a treat to speak with both of you about Toil and Trouble, A Women's History of the Occult. Not only is this book brimming with incredible history, it is also just gorgeous. The cover is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing this time and your book with us. Where can folks find you online? And are there any resources resources you'd like to direct folks to? Um, well, I'll start just, you mentioned that the book is beautiful and it is, and that is artwork that is done by Caitlin Keegan. So I wanted to give, <laughs> give her a little shout out. Um, but if they're interested in finding me, I am, you know, across I'm across social media. I'm pretty easy to find. My website is lisacroger.com and Mel and I share a podcast, um, the Monster She Wrote podcast. So that kind of continues the work we did in the book. Um, so we'd love for people to check that out. Yeah, um, I have a website, melanieranderson.com and I'm also on Instagram um, at melanieranderson7. Uh, so that's my social media presence at this point. <laughs> My social media presence is also very limited and is only on Instagram. <laughs> if people are looking for me, they can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. Thank you both again. Thank you so much for putting this together. It's an incredible resource and thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature. I'd like to invite you to join the National Women's Studies Association this November 10th through the 13th at the Hilton Minneapolis for the annual conference. The 2022 NWSA conference theme, Killing Rage, Resistance on the Other Side of Freedom, seeks to open up conversations about freedom and justice, salvation and sacrifice, convenience and controversy, and whose life and vote matters. At our conference, you can connect with other activists, feminists, and scholars from across the globe. This year, the keynote speakers are feminist leaders Angela Davis and Anita Hill and many more. Don't know what NWSA is? 
The NWSA is the world's largest group of feminists, activists, and scholars dedicated to advancing women and women's studies across the globe. So are you a feminist? Join NWSA at nwsa.org to become a member and to see more details on this year's conference. Again, that's nwsa.org or follow them on Twitter at NWSA or on Instagram at NWSA underscore IG. We hope to see you this November here in Minneapolis. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.